Pints with Jack, Season 4, Episode 82. After Hours with Dr. Brian Williams. Welcome everyone. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast where Matt, Andrew and I break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season thus far, we've eavesdropped on the correspondence of Screwtape and we've listened to his toast to the Tempter's College. However, now we're halfway through Narnia Month and in previous weeks we've read and we've discussed the chronicle for this season, The Silver Chair, and we've spoken to various authors about Narnia. But today we're going to be looking at how the Narniad can function as pre-evangelism for a post-Christian world. And to help us unpack that is the author of the book with that very title, Dr. Brian Williams. And Dr. Brian Williams has taught courses in the history of ideas and philosophy as an adjunct professor at the college at Southeastern in Wake Forest, North Carolina. He is the author of Putting Together the Pieces, How to Make Sense of the Old Testament, and is published in the top academic publication, The Journal of Inkling Studies. He teaches the Bible weekly and frequently mentors men to think and live Christianity in all of life. He lives with his wife, Jennifer, and their two children, Pierce and Claire, in Wake Forest, North Carolina. And he's here today to discuss his recent book, C.S. Lewis, Pre-Evangelism for a Post-Christian World, Why Narnia Might Be More Real Than We Think. Dr. Williams, welcome to Pines with Jack. Hey, David. Thanks for having me. Grateful to be here. Now, you first came on my radar when you appeared on Michael Jehosky's podcast, Mythic Mission. And I enjoyed that interview, so I looked at your book on Amazon and saw that it was endorsed by two people who have previously been on this show, Dr. Lewis Marcos and Owen Barfield, the grandson of the Inkling. And that pretty much settled it for me. I bought the book and I sent you an invitation. Yeah, so uh, Lewis uh, Marcos and Owen Barfield were both so kind to endorse the book. And um, we've corresponded some since uh, their initial endorsements and just two wonderful guys. So I was very grateful for their help. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, they're both great. Well, Let's push on so we can talk about your book and discuss why Narnia might be more real than we think. And our first standard segment is the quote of the week. And today it comes from a letter which Lewis wrote to the Anglican nun, his friend, Sister Penelope, following the publication of the first of the Ransom trilogy, Out of the Silent Planet. He wrote, Supposing that by casting all these Christian things into an imaginary world, stripping them of their stained glass and Sunday school associations, one could make them for the first time appear in their real potency. Could one not thus steal past those watchful dragons? And I think as we discuss your book, it'll become very clear why I chose that quotation. <laughs> yeah. And for our drink of the week, we are recording early on a Saturday morning, so I am just enjoying my second cup of tea of the day. Dr. Williams, are you drinking anything? I am, and I am also on my second cup. However, I have just standard black coffee, nothing fancy, but it gets the job done. (laughs) Well, cheers. Cheers. So let's talk about your book. In the introduction, you explain its genesis. So can you just give our listeners some idea of your own background, your journey of faith, your journey with Lewis, and ultimately how this book came to be? Sure. Yeah, so Lewis uh, had an enormous impact in my coming to Christ. I did not become a Christian until I was 20 years old. When I was in the second grade, I can remember I had a teacher who would go up to the front of the class at the end of every day, and she would open up The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and she would read to us for 15 or 20 minutes or so at the end of each class. And David, I remember sitting there absolutely enchanted 
had no idea what was happening to me. I just thought <laughs> I had an overactive imagination, and I was all you know even a little embarrassed at how inwardly giddy I was every time we'd enter into the magical land of Narnia as my teacher read that book. I would have given all of my possessions, I think, to have gotten into Narnia. It, it, it so grabbed me. And more than that, to, to have gotten to meet Aslan the lion. It just did something to me that I, I couldn't put words to. Years later, I became a Christian at, age of, at the age of 20, as I said. I had struggled intensely with drug addiction to really had, had veered away uh, down a terrible path. And uh, when I was at rock bottom, there was a man that shared the story of Christ with me and encouraged me that God could forgive me and could change my life if I would trust Christ and follow him. And so I, I, I did at age 20, became a Christian. And then I remember being, uh, going to a church. We were living in Memphis, Tennessee at the time. And the pastor would stand up every now and then, and he would quote from C.S. Lewis. And I would think, why is this guy quoting from this children's book author? And this children's book author that I only ever knew him as a children's book author had things to say about Christianity that seemed so profound. And so I went back and I looked into who was C.S. Lewis? And I found out he was this great Christian apologist. And so then what I did, David, I went back and I read all the books again, the Chronicles of Narnia. And this time I saw things that I completely missed before <laughs> the connections were coming together. And it wasn't until it was a few years after that, my wife and I had moved here to North Carolina, was going to seminary. And on one of the breaks over Christmas, we'd gone back home to visit family in Memphis and I read C.S. Lewis's book, Surprised by Joy, his autobiography. And what he described in there, his own journey to Christ and how imagination had played such a pivotal role. I can remember sitting in, uh, in this room at a desk in, in Memphis reading and just in tears. Because it, it, it hit me that here was a man who understood what I had experienced and mm. actually had then gone and written his own stories and I, I'm convinced for the very purpose of helping others to have a similar experience so that they too might come to Christ in the way that he did. That was my journey of, of coming to Christ. And that's where C.S. Lewis comes into play. Now, as I was working my way through my, my PhD program, I started to ask the question, what is it about imaginative fiction and the kind that Lewis wrote that it can do those sorts of things to us? And also, what kind of world do we live in? What, what, what is the nature of reality such that imaginary things that aren't, that aren't factually real can still grab us and, and, and convey something of real reality to us? And I, I, I had to answer that question. And that was the question I sought out to, uh, to answer that really motivated what I did in this book. I absolutely love so much of your story. <laughs> The way you describe yourself in enraptured and just so focused and attentive to the telling of the story is something very similar to what my mother describes about when she first took me to the theater to see a play of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And when I knew Aslan was about to come on the stage, and I 
I would shuffle to the edge of my edge of my seat. She said all the other children were screaming and shouting and just being a not a nightmare. She said you were just lasered in because oh. you knew who was about to appear. Yes. Hey, so similarly <laughs> for me, I went and saw the Nutcracker play. The Nutcracker had the same enchantment for me. And it was Drosselmeyer mm. that that there was a sense of the numinous we'll talk about later yeah. probably that, that came through, <laughs> but that same sitting there and just enchanted. Yeah. That's fascinating. And when you actually sit and just think about why is that happening, it really depends on what worldview you bring to that because it is a very confusing thing. Yes. As you say, why is it this fiction grabbing us and transfixing us in a way that so little, so few other things in, in life do? Yes. Yes, absolutely. And there have been various answers given to that question, as you, as you well know, mm -hmm. depending upon the <laughs> worldview that you, you bring to that question. Well... Let's dig into the body of your book now. Uh, so in the first chapter, you give an outline of Lewis's life. And I'm sure much of this material will be familiar to our listeners. Uh, so I wanted to ask you, what do you think are the really significant aspects of Jack's life that readers really need to grasp in order to understand the subsequent chapters in your book? So I'll mention a few from his childhood and then uh, maybe a couple from later in his life. Anyone who's read Surprised by Joy knows that you get a lot of his childhood in that book. And he thinks that childhood is such a formative and important part of a person's story, so he spends a lot of time on that. He tells us that there are three instances of what he calls joy, and for our, if any of our listeners are not aware of exactly what he means by that, what you just described happened to you in the theater before Aslan came out, what I felt when my teacher read the book Chronicles of Narnia— we experience joy, that, that sense of inconsolable longing that, that you would give almost anything in all the world to have the fulfillment of that desire. It's a desire that even though you don't have the fulfillment of it, somehow the desire is in itself desirable. Hmm. And anyone who's had it knows, knows what that is. Lewis tells us three of those experiences happened to him early in life. One was provoked by a memory of when his younger brother, uh, sorry, rather his older brother, Warney, had brought a biscuit tin into their nursery when they were younger. Lewis tells us one day he's standing by a currant bush, the wind, the breeze was blowing, and that memory came to him of the day when Warney brought the biscuit tin toy garden into the nursery. And it, he said it was something more powerful than just nostalgia. It, it grabbed him and, and, and awakened in him this sense of longing and longing for for the beautiful, true beauty. And he says that was incredibly important. It happened to him again when he read Beatrix Potter's Squirrel Nutkin <laughs> and a similar stabbing of desire. And he, he tells us it was as if the, uh, the idea of autumn had arrested him. And then the third that he has was when he read uh, Tegner's Dropna and he reads the lines, uh, Balder the beautiful is dead, is dead. And he was transported to northern regions uh, 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 of enchanted uh, places, and the same thing hit him there. He spends much of his life trying to make sense of those experiences, and they would come and go from, from uh, time to time, as he tells us in his story. Those experiences are going to help him become a Christian. As Tolkien, as, as, as we know, J.R.R. Tolkien, his good friend, explained to Lewis later while they were on a walk, the nature of myth and reality. And Lewis was able to look back on some of those experiences and some of the myths that had awakened that longing, and he began to connect the dots. These things that were provoking longing, though not factually true, 
they conveyed something to me uh, of truth, of reality through those things. And so when you come to Christianity, Tolkien helped him to see this is where all of those fragments of truth that you found, the little inklings here and there in all the myths, they come together in the one historically true account of Christianity. And Lewis will become a Christian thanks in part to that conversation. Now, it was so appropriate, David, that you read the the quote from Sister Penelope, because I think the other really significant event that I pick up in the book is when Lewis writes Out of the Silent Planet. Mm -hmm. He writes this before he writes the Chronicles of Narnia, and he was surprised by the reviews that came back to that book that uh, very few of the 50-plus reviewers even picked up on any reference to anything outside of his own imagination, that this thing had anything to do with Christianity. And of course, uh, those Christians who read it will catch what Lewis has done in there. And he says to Sister Penelope, he says, we might use this great ignorance for the evangelization of England. We can now smuggle any bit of theology into people's minds under cover of romance. And we'll talk about what romance means a bit later, but through this imaginative story, you could do that. So that that showed me that Lewis knew what he was doing. This was intentional, that he himself would use stories to try to convey Christian truths to people who, if you came at them head on, they -hmm. probably would not have ears to hear it. And so Lewis was trying to be clever in a way that he could introduce Christianity to people who had really become disillusioned with it. I've often thought that we hear people decry biblical illiteracy today, uh, but I've often thought that actually that then gives us this wonderful opportunity. People are so ignorant of the Bible, we can actually sneak it past them without them even realizing. You really can. We're in, the, we're in a similar situation, only we're further down the path than Lewis was even in his day. Hmm. Now, you go on in your book to express an idea which is, was really important in my own faith journey, particularly in the faith journey of my co-host, Matt. You entitle the chapter C.S. Lewis's Sacramental View of Reality. So I have a series of questions that we need to answer. You know, What does it mean to have a sacramental view of reality? And how did Lewis come to have this view? And how does he communicate this view to us through his books? Sure. So Lewis comes to it, and you, you get this if you read his, his book, Surprised by Joy, where, again, the, the experiences that he's trying to make sense of, what kind of world is this that these sorts, that a memory of a, my brother bringing a, a beautiful biscuit tin in, of reading an imaginative story by Beatrix Potter, of reading lines from a poem about Balder, this, this incredible figure who has, has tragically died, and even uh, music could awaken it for Lewis and other experiences of nature. What kind of a world is it that, that we feel so pulled towards something transcendent? And you can even read non-believers who will use that word because they, can't, they almost can't find a vocabulary. If, if, if all we've got is naturalism, there's nothing outside of the material world, our vocabulary is too small to capture what's happening to us in those experiences. So even non-believers, you'll find, will say, it seemed almost transcendent, something pulling to me from out of this world. And Lewis will come to identify those experiences with Christ himself. Christ himself was calling to Lewis, if you like, through those experiences of joy, because he himself is the ultimate fulfillment of that. He both stirs it up in us, and he both satisfies it, ultimately. 
And so Lewis, um, before he becomes a Christian, he, he becomes an idealist. And he realizes there's something mental, something, there are ideas that stand behind reality. It's not just the material world. There's something non-material that, that, that must give order and structure to the world that we live in. And that, that must be unchanging and transcendent, but somehow it participates in this. That's kind of one of the early steps he takes. And then when he becomes a Christian, he's able to give content to whatever that thing is out there mm -hmm. that's ordered all this. The Logos, as John will tell us in his gospel, the ordering principle behind the universe is not just some abstract principle. He's a person. It's Christ. And uh, now what this means is that when we say that the, the reality is sacramental, what we're saying is that a sacrament is something that at the same time that it points to something higher than itself, it also participates in that thing. So we believe that the world of the material that we see, that we smell, taste, touch, hear, and, and we can see that that's not the whole show, that there's more to reality than that. Plato saw that. And Lewis was heavily influenced by Plato. Plato had this idea that behind the, the, the things of the particulars, he'll call them, were essences or uh, 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 universals, these unchanging things. So, for instance, um, you and I are two human beings, but there, and we participate in the universal, which we would just simply call humanness. Hmm. Humanness is one thing, but there are many humans. Plato writes his dialogues, and he'll, ha he'll tell us about justice. And you could find many just people or many just acts, but justice is one thing, and it's unchanging, and it's universal. And uh, Lewis believed that this world was ordered and structured by the universals, the unchanging objective realities that are more real, in a sense, than even the things that we can see with our eyes. They're more real because they've always, they've always existed, whereas the material world has not. They're unchanging, whereas the particulars are changing, and, uh, and he, of course, thinks these ultimately reside in the mind of God. God, who speaks his creation into existence, first had the thought, if you like, and so when he speaks, he's pulling out of the resources of his divine mind, which is everlasting, and uh, he creates this world. One of the metaphors that's been used is shadows and solids, and even the, the writer of Hebrews will use this. And there was a movie made of Lewis called The Shadowlands. Mm -hmm. And so this world down here is like, it's like the Shadowlands for Lewis. But whenever you have a shadow, you know that the only reason that the shadow's there is because there's a more solid thing that stands between whatever the surfaces that that shadow is cast on and the light, the, or, the, the light source that's coming down. So a shadow is a clue to us that if we'd maybe turn around and look this way, we'd see something more solid there. Mm -hmm. And Lewis says that's just the kind of world God has given us. And so if we look just simply at the world down here, the particulars, uh, we, miss, we, miss, we miss what's really real. But if we look upward, as James tell us, tells us, every good and perfect gift comes down from God, from the Father of lights, we, not, we don't just look at this world that God has made, but we can look through it in a sense, and we see what's really more real. To quote Professor Kirk, it's all in Plato. What do they teach them in these schools <laughs> these days? <laughs> That's it. It's all in Plato. Now, in that chapter, you speak specifically about the transcendentals, truth, goodness, and beauty. How do they fit into that scheme? So truth, goodness, and beauty would be the classical uh, universals that we would read about in the philosophers, and again, Lewis being heavily influenced by Plato. So Lewis believed 
that, of course, he believed truth was objective, was universal. And so you don't just have true statements, uh, but you have truth itself as a concept that a statement can, in a sense, uh, participate in. So truth is something that is, uh, is universal and unchanging. Goodness is the same thing. Goodness, we can, and we can use goodness in a number of ways. So if we're just speaking of moral goodness, uh, you, you might go help a neighbor out today with something that they need in their home. You might help them cut their grass if they've had a recent surgery and they can't get up off their feet. I may uh, go do something good as well. I, I might go and uh, do the dishes for my wife, which I probably should do. And uh, we could do many good things. Uh, but goodness is one thing that can be predicated of many particular things in this world that, of the particulars that's changing. Beauty is the same thing. You, can ha- you could speak of a beautiful symphony. You could speak of a beautiful song. You could speak of a beautiful flower. You could speak of a beautiful idea, even, and beauty can be predicated of many different things, but beauty itself is one thing. And now, when you when you think about what we're saying with these universals, they're they're in a sense, as I said earlier, more real uh, because they're unchanging, they're one, they're everlasting, and they're far bigger than any ideas that we have. I mean, at at best, we begin to just get our heads around them a little bit, but they're bigger than our heads. And so the the value of my saying that, when I say they're bigger than us, what I'm really trying to get at is they create a sense of awe and wonder, of awe and wonder. They're transcendent. And if Lewis is right, and of course, he got this from Augustine, if Lewis and Augustine are right, that these transcendent universals, these these, uh, forms reside in the mind of God, then as we experience those universals that are present in the particulars, I I hear the beautiful symphony, I see the beautiful flower, I'm at the same time being given, if you like, I'm being thrown a line down from heaven. And if I follow that, as Lewis tells us, follow, he says, his analogy is follow the sunbeam back up to the sun. If I see the ray coming down and I I notice it's illuminating things down here, but then I trace it all the way back up, I'll eventually take my line of vision all the way back up to its original source, which is the sun. And the same thing can be true of these experiences that we have. And they don't just affect us intellectually. They affect us emotionally in a very deep way. And as I said earlier, you find find all throughout uh, the history of literature people, both Christian and non-Christian, describing these sorts of experiences that seem to pull to them from somewhere else. And so that's, that's, that's the significance, I think, is that if, if we allow them to affect us like I think God has designed them to, then they do, in the end, bring us to Christ. And it strikes me that they do change us by us experiencing them. You know, when you see truth and goodness and beauty all around you, you're more likely to be true, good, and beautiful. <laughs> oh, it's it's incredibly true. And that really ties into the doctrine of participation, which they spoke about a lot in the Inklings, and also about the concept of theosis, which we've spoken about a lot on this podcast. The idea that as we participate in these universals, it, to quote St. Peter, we're, we're sharing in the divine nature. Yes. That when, yes. When, when we worship a God who says, be holy as I am holy, he is the very means by which we are made holy. We, when yes. we are holy, we are participating really in his holiness. Yes. Lewis thinks even when we think true thoughts, that truth is only there because 
God is there and God has given us a world that is rational. We can know it. He, of course, is the truth, the very truth itself, so that when we think true thoughts, he says we're in a sense participating in God's rationality. So what, yeah, whether you look to truth, goodness, or beauty, there's some sense of participation, both the universal in the particular, but also us as we share in those things and experience them, we're in a sense, you know, maybe starting to touch the finger of God. Hmm. And that ties in with heavenly and hellish creatures from mere Christianity. As we turn ourselves towards the light or away from the light, that itself will change us and that will then compound. Hmm. Yes. Well, after you speak about the sacramental view of reality, you talk about Lewis's romantic view of imagination. So what does it mean to have a romantic view of something? And what difference does that make to imagination? Yeah, so by romantic, I certainly don't mean um, a, uh, a novel uh, uh, of a man and a woman falling in love that you might, you might buy at a convenience store or something. Uh, that's not what I have in mind. I don't have in mind candlelight dinners with our wives. <laughs> uh, Lewis uses the word in a different sense. And uh, if you want to go, anyone wants to go check this out, it's in the afterword to the third edition of Pilgrim's Regress. And what he means by romantic, he says, it's simply a story that awakes, awakens longing, that, that has that enchantment, that brings us to that place of experiencing inconsolable longing. And a story or any form of art that would do that, to, in Lewis's mind, he would classify that as romantic. Now, to have a romantic imagination means that our imagination is working I'm convinced as it's meant to as it's meant to work as a means of a means of evoking worship. And so again to to come back to Lewis's uh stories and and what happened to me and to you when you were sitting in that play our imagination was being romanticized if you like when we were having those experiences because we were starting to get a sense of our imaginations were 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 hot on the trail of something whether we knew what it was or not at the time but the longing was awakened, there was the enchantment, and we felt ourselves being pulled towards something far greater than ourselves. And uh, so that's what Lewis means uh, by romantic. And of course, he'll, he'll try to write stories, I think he did it successfully, that, that would be romantic, imaginative fiction. And therefore, George MacDonald's Fantasties would fall into exactly the same category, because it did that for him. Precisely, precisely. And the value of those stories is that it hopefully does what it did for Lewis. It baptizes our imagination so that the world is, it never looks the same after that ever again, in the best sense. I loved your example of the crucifixion in that chapter by saying about how uh, different people can see the same thing, receive the same sense data, but they can perceive it radically differently. Yes. Yeah, that and what I'm getting at there is um, when, as I read David a lot on the imagination when I was writing this book, I often would come across people just talking about the ma the imagination in a way that is partly true, but it's just incomplete. Many people will think of the imagination as the the mechanism that produces images mm -hmm. in our mind. That that's what the imagination's for. It certainly does that, but Lewis tells us, and of course he 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 would get this heavily from his friend uh, Owen Barfield, that the real uh, purpose of the imagination is to help us to understand, to, to, to bring meaning to what we 
uh, see, whether with the physical eye or with the eye, of the, uh, with the eye of the mind. It's to bring meaning, and that the imagination is able to take all these things and put them together into a coherent, meaningful whole. And so, at the crucifixion of Christ, you, yeah, you had some people who saw in their mind. Uh, well, they all saw with the physical eye a man on a cross dying. They all saw that. Some saw by way of right meaning a man die who was more than a man, but as as the one uh, Roman soldier said, truly this was the Son of God. You had another man who I think saw a bit more, the thief on the cross who does repent at the end. And he, not, he didn't just see this as the Son of God, but he saw this is the man who can deliver my soul from death. And so he asks, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And, uh, and then, of course, you had others who just wagged the tongue and, and mocked and jeered and, and, just, and saw a criminal up there being killed, all seeing the same thing physically, but bringing different aspects of information together in a very different conclusion. And, and, and that would be uh, in part because of the imagination. To quote the magician's nephew, what you see depends very much on where you're standing and what sort of person you are. Oh, is that not one of the most profound quotes you find in Lewis? And I think he's talking about Uncle Andrew mm-hmm. as, as the music's beginning to, to go forth and whatnot. And to Uncle Andrew, it sounds like noise and he just wants to plug his ears. Uncle Andrew's become a terrible person. Uh, for the others, though, who, who know this is beautiful and this is wonderful, they're enchanted by it. And it's the same with the children in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when they first hear the name of Aslan. How they react tells you a lot about what's going on inside of them. Ah, it does. Yeah, Lewis, so Lewis will tell us. He says, you, uh, you see God with your whole self. <laughs> you don't just see him with the intellect. You see him with your whole self. And it does depend on what kind of person you are. So you just mentioned Owen Barfield. And in that chapter, you mentioned two books which really changed how Lewis thought about imagination. Uh, the first one was Symbolism and Belief by Edwin Bevan, and the second one was by Owen Barfield. And it was a book we talked about a little bit in our recent Barfield month, Poetic Diction. Mm. So <laughs> I'm always a little nervous when I'm about to ask a Barfield question to any of my guests. It's, I'm just like holding on for dear life. Please let me understand yeah. what they're about to say. <laughs> uh, but I, I really loved the the accessible nature of how you described it in your book. So. What was it about these books, Symbolism and Belief and Poetic Diction, which shaped Lewis's understanding of imagination? Oh, now, now, this is so fascinating. I had no idea what I was getting myself in for when uh, you know you read in Lewis's autobiography. He says, anybody who wants to understand these things need to, needs to immediately go and read Barfield's and Bevan's books. And I thought, I've never read those. I've never read anybody who really did anything with those. I just never encountered it. So I said, I, I better go read them. So I read uh, Barfield's book, Poetic Diction, and the value of what Barfield gives to us that helps us understand Lewis, and Lewis's thinking, is his concept of the true or the good metaphor. The true or the good metaphor. Barfield thought that metaphors, if they're good and true ones, the metaphorical aspect of any concept was, was latent in that concept from the very beginning. It may have been forgotten, it may have never been uh, you know, dug up recently, but, but that if you thought well about it, that, that you would see that that metaphor is, is, there's an essential, an ontological, he'll tell us, connection between the metaphor and the thing itself. Mm. So here's an example. He tells us that the metaphor of a, of a weeping willow would be the metaphor 
the image that would convey sad love. And this would be something that he's going to say, this is not just culturally located. This concept of drooping, of downward, of, of low and downcast, there's a universal link, he thinks, between the concept of sadness or sad love and and the drooping, the downcast, the, the head hung, and, and how the tree itself of a weeping willow actually helps uh, to convey that. And I think that's incredibly helpful because, again, remember where Lewis thinks that this world is ordered rationally, that it's been created by a god who has put this uh, rational structure into things so that if you latch onto a good metaphor, you've not just come up with something on your own that happens to be clever. You've discovered a piece of reality that's really there in the same way that you might discover something about mathematics. We didn't create them. We found them. We discovered them. And uh, so I think that when you're, we find this all throughout the scriptures, when the psalmist will say, the Lord is my rock. There is something about rockness that very appropriately conveys to us something essentially true about God. Uh, the Lord is called a lion in the Bible. Uh, he's not called a rabbit. Uh, <laughs> and, and there's a difference. And something about lionness, the, the regality, the strength, the, the, the overwhelming power and majesty of a lion rightly conveys to us something about the Lord himself. And reality is full of these things. So Barfield uh, really helps us understand that the way that language works is that you have all these metaphors. And he thinks when you find a good one, you've really just peeled back the curtain and found something that was always there, an essential link between the symbol and the symbolized. Wow. What about uh, Edwin Bevan with his symbolism yeah, so and belief? Bevan does something very similar. Um, he'll, he'll distinguish for us at the beginning of his book. He'll, he'll tell us there are two kinds of symbols, and he'll quickly dismiss one of them. He says one kind of symbol is the kind of symbol that it merely stands for something, but it doesn't resemble it at all. It's, and and we, we know that you can do this with a company's logo. He gives us the example of a company's logo or of a nation's flag. Um, there's nothing about a nation's flag that actually looks like that nation or that would in any sense resemble that nation. It's, 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 that's not its purpose. He says there's another kind of a symbol, though, that does, at the same time that it points to something, it participates and it has an essential resemblance to that thing. That's a very different kind of symbol. In the example that he gives, he says, here's one. He says, for instance, if you were to try to convey to a blind man what the color of red looks like, you might tell him that the color of red is like the sound of a trumpet. <laughs> and uh, if you just think about that for a minute, you think, that's brilliant. That, 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 that would help him get a sense of what the color red is like, this sharpness, this, 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 this brilliance, the, the, the sound of the brass, come, and, and how that might link up with, with redness. And, so, uh, he, and, and, and the other thing that's significant about this kind of symbol is it does convey to us something about the nature of the thing, even if we've not experienced it. So again, you just go through, anytime we read the Psalms, Look at all of the different images that are used of God, even though no one has seen God the Father. No one has seen him. But we get, we get all these images and these metaphors that, that convey to us something of the essence of who our God is. 
and they do it well. And that's the kind of symbol that that Bevan's going to spend most of his book talking about. And he'll he'll go through a number of them: height, light, spirit. He does a couple of others, but the concept of just height has all height has always been associated in all cultures, all times and places. Height has always been associated with the divine, as has light. Uh, light and height, we just know those things. Um, if you were to have an, uh, a movie that you were trying to, that you were creating, and you wanted to convey something of God, I mean, there's a reason why even the Greeks put the gods up on Mount Olympus. Mm-hmm. They don't put them down in a valley. And uh, if we saw the Clash of the Titans movies that come out, when Zeus shows up, he's not in a dark cloud. <laughs> he's glowing brilliantly. And so these things are uh, symbols that convey something of the essence of of divinity and and most importantly of, of of God, the one true God. I heard that Lewis's favorite psalm was "The heavens declare the glory of God." Yes, very, very appropriate. A- incredibly. What does this view of imagination? How does it impact our understanding of stories? Yeah. So when we have this view of imagination uh, and we think about stories. Let me just be very honest here. I, we have a lot of stories. You could go pick up any number of books and read a number of stories. Not all stories do a good job, do an equally good job of conveying to us reality uh, by means of the imagination, as Lewis does, and I think as Tolkien does, as George MacDonald does. You could have some stories that I think take you further off the path, further off the path, uh, and, and would distort reality. Um, the value of understanding the nature of reality, as we've just described it, the sacramental view of reality, Lewis thought that the same thing that's true in the physical world is true in the world of imagination and story. That is, if the particulars in this physical world can somehow serve as a medium between us and God, a beautiful sunset can awaken a sense of longing. And if we looked up and we noticed rightly who the one is who created that, we'd see that the ultimate beauty doesn't reside in the sun, but it's in God who created the sun. In the same way that the physical world can do that, the world of imagination can do the same thing as well. And that's the ingenious conclusion that Lewis comes to, and he puts it into his stories, so that when somebody like a Lewis or a Tolkien writes these stories, they're trying to convey reality to us in a true sense, so that more things that are truly virtuous are cast in their true light. Things that are truly beautiful are acknowledged, at least by the hero characters, mm. to be really beautiful. You don't. Lewis would never put Uncle Andrew, for those who have read The Magician's Nephew, he would never want to convey that Uncle Andrew's perspective of what Aslan's song sounds like is ugly. He would never want anyone to come away thinking that Uncle Andrew got that right. Yeah. Lewis believed that there is a right way to view reality, and there's a wrong way to view it. There are values that are fitting to the way that the world really is, and there are values that are unfitting. And of course, he, he does his most extensive treatment on that in The Abolition of Man. And if people would like to know more about The Abolition of Man, listen to the recent interview I did with Dr. Michael Ward about his book, After Humanity. I've been reading that book again, and I'm starting to see why Walter Hooper said that if you want to understand Lewis, you really need to understand the abolition of man. Yes, it's, it is the most... Uh, I heard an inter- interview with, with a man from, I think it was Regency College, said that that was the most important... Lewis told him in a, in a conversation that was his most important book that he ever wrote. Hmm. Well, speaking of important books that people have written, in your next chapter, 
You take everything that we've discussed thus far about imagination, about romance, about symbol, about sacramental view of reality. You take all of that and then you begin to apply it to Lewis's fiction, specifically the Ransom Trilogy and the Chronicles of Narnia. And so since this chapter is really the heart of your book, can you share with us some of the ideas that you explore here? And on our podcast, we've read the first four Narnian Chronicles. So our listeners should definitely at least be familiar with those, if not his larger corpus. Yeah. So a story will help here. There was a, and I pick up on this story in my book. There was, I think it was a a second or third grade teacher. She wrote a letter to, um, oh, I can't remember the man who she wrote it to, but I remember the letter she wrote to one of one of uh, a Lewis scholar. And she said that she had read much like my teacher did. She read the story, the Lion, the witch and the wardrobe to her class. And she said, when she got to the part to where Aslan dies, she said there was a hush that came over the room. And these little third graders, right? Little little third graders. And she said one student who'd read further said, oh, it spoke up and said, oh, it's okay. It's okay. Just wait. Something wonderful is about to happen. And the teacher, in her letter to this other Lewis scholar, she says, I will never forget the experience of, of watching my students when I read that story to them. And in her own words, she says, it was the experience of worship that there was something so transcendent that those students were connecting with. And um, I try to pick up on all the ways, well, as many as you can fit into a chapter, right, <laughs> of the various ways that Lewis conveys a sense of reality, uh, a sense of wonder and enchantment through that. So when you have uh, Aslan dying on the stone table in the place of Edmund to set Edmund free, You've got something very much like the crucifixion of Christ. Now, the the device that will will serve for his death has been changed. It's a knife that's plunged into Aslan from the witch. It's not nails on a cross. And uh, what happens after that is a little different. It's not a tomb. It's not a stone that's rolled away from a tomb, but it's a stone table that cracks. And it's not Christ coming out of the tomb. It's Aslan coming back. And But what that conveys to people is a sense of something factually true that really did happen. Just the details have been changed. And I try to walk through and show different instances of where Lewis has smuggled in Christian theology through these stories, and also instances of a sense of enchantment that, that would awaken uh, that longing in each of us. I think one of the most potent ones, potent ones that you get, David, is in the Ransom trilogy when... Uh, ransom is it's in Paralandra when he's coming up the top of the mountain and he says something at, in that in that journey up there he's coming up to where all the Eldila these angelic like powerful beings are there and ransom says this is at once the most holy and the most unholy thing I've ever done in all my life and the way that Lewis conveys that sense of awe and wonder the the uncanny the numinous um it stabs you. And, 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 and I try to show how he does that and how this would help people, especially in our world that we live in today, David, where the world has been so stripped of wonder and so stripped away of any sense of transcendence in the sacred, so that what you have is just the, the drab, the ordinary. And I think that people are longing for a sense of, of the transcendent. And there's something inside of them that I think is put there by God that gives them a clue to that, that that's really what they're made for. So I try to, I try to draw that out. 
and I checked my Kindle version while you were talking. It was Clyde Kilby. Mm. That, that was that was. The That's scroll. exactly who it was, Clyde Kilby. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What you say puts me in mind of something that I say when people ask me about the spiritual state of England. I say it's mostly apathy. People just don't care. They they're just not that interested. The the longing within them just seems so muted. Yes. And so I think it makes an awful lot of sense that our pre-evangelism needs to be to reawaken that restlessness, that longing, uh, that fascination with the universals. 100%. So Richard, another book, Richard Weaver, in his book, Ideas Has, Have Consequences, he makes a statement that's profoundly true. He says, we never undertake to reason seriously about anything unless we first have an awakened desire for that thing. Mm-hmm. And I think he's right. People are not, if there's apathy, they're not going to go take something seriously and give it real thought. It's not worth it to them. We're, we see the same thing in the States. I think we're just a few years behind what we're seeing in the UK, but yep. that sense of apathy is growing. And I think all the more reason, David, why we need these sorts of stories, both the old ones and, and people today to write these, to awaken that sense of longing. Well, related to that, at the end of your book, you talk about applying what Lewis did back then to today. So what can we simply replicate in terms of what Lewis did? And what do you think might require some adjustment to do what Lewis did? Very practically, I think we need to write – I think we do still need to write stories. Uh, Sadly, fewer and fewer people are reading these days. But I, I am not convinced that we give up writing books because there is a an apathy towards reading. I think what I might do is write shorter books. And I, I think – take a look at many of Lewis's books. He writes many short books. Oh, yeah. And short chapters as well. Yes. And I, th- I think there's something to that. As we're going to write these books, these stories, Lewis has a – he has a statement somewhere where he says, we don't need more books on – just Christianity explicitly. What we need is books on all sorts of subjects with their Christianity latent. And I am convinced that that is one of the most profound and helpful things he he said and something that we desperately need to take heed of today. So that we just, that's where I say, I just want to help people think Christianly about all of life. So if, if, that, so if people are going to write stories, I've encouraged people to think about a few principles. If we're going to write a story, they need to have a sense of the numinous, what Lewis calls the numinous. Another word for that would be the uncanny. Uh, a sense of that we're in the presence of something far greater than ourselves. It may be dangerous even. I mean, I think that's what Lewis is getting at when when the beavers tell the children about Aslan, and they one one says, "Well, is he safe?" <laughs> Heavens, no! Who said anything about safe? But he's good. And I don't know about you, David, but, but when I was young and I heard that description, at the same time, it put a little shakiness in my knees. Mm-hmm. I wanted to very sh- knees shaking approach Aslan. There was a desirability, even as there was the fear. And I thought, how could you ever imagine a fiction story conveying more of who God is better than those two things? He's not safe, but he's good. And so I think if we could convey a sense of the numinous, uh, because our world is just void of that, uh, also a sense of the sacred, something that's sacred, that things are not just trivial, and uh, not not to get too much on a, a bandwagon here, but but I do think it's important in our worship 
even as Christians in our churches, that I see so much of a almost a, a revulsion towards anything that would awaken a sense of reverence and sacred, mm-hmm. a sense of the sacred. I think there's a there's there it's an admirable desire to want to relate to people and say, hey, we're we're not different creatures. We're we're humans just like you. We don't want to be prideful and puffed up. We want to relate. But at the same time, we do come and we approach a holy God. And there ought to be a sense of the sacred and the holy that we could convey. If you read Roger Scruton's book, The Face of God, I think he conveys that so well in his book. That's a wonderful book that he's done. A couple others, I just mentioned virtue and guilt. Our world is so devoid of virtue. We talk all day long about values, but we talk very seldom about virtue. And the classic philosophers knew that virtue was something objective, unchanging, transcendent, and this was true for all people, all times, and all places. And these were things that all humans ought to pursue. And uh, I'm firmly convinced that that's the way that it is. We could convey a sense of that and of what is truly morally praiseworthy in a story and cast that in its true light, and cast what's evil and wicked in its true light as well. I, For me, I think the movie Chariots of Fire did that so well. Hmm. Uh, another author who's well-known to Lewis uh, students, Joseph Leconte, he's talked somewhere about moral beauty and how we're, we're drawn, we're inspired even to, to make a change in our lives. Sometimes when we encounter real moral beauty, courage, sacrifice, for me, as I've seen that movie and then I read further into Eric Little's story, I didn't just enjoy the story. I wanted to go and do – I wanted to be more courageous. Yeah. As, you know, I'm drawn to that. And then the last thing, uh, a couple things, uh, theology in disguise. We can smuggle theology into our stories just as Lewis did. We can do that well now. As you point out, there's biblical illiteracy. We can actually use that for good, I think. And then uh, Tolkien gives us the concept of subcreation. Where whatever story we create, it needs to be coherent, it needs to be a coherent world to where we're not asking our readers to constantly work hard at suspending disbelief because our story's so unbelievable, or maybe it's just so poorly done in its art. We need to do it well, we need to do it with excellence, and it needs to, to hang together as a coherent whole. And I think whatever your, the content of your story is, if we could pull those things together, a sense of the numinous of the sacred, of virtue and guilt, of theology smuggled in, in disguise, all in a, a sub-created world that, that hangs together in a coherent, believable whole, even though it's imaginative, I think that, that, that we might see something happen like what we're seeing people experience with Lewis's and Tolkien's stories. Mm. And I was going to ask you, are these stories just books? But you've mentioned films already, and I think this is true for all media in terms of whatever it is that you're communicating, you can communicate these ideas. And one thing that struck me when you were saying about conveying virtue and showing good and evil in their true colors, there's been a real tendency in recent years to try and always make that gray, to make in an effort to try and be realistic, to portray your heroes as flawed heroes uh, and yes. the the rise of the anti-hero i mean the classic one being james bond he is an awful human being other than yes. the fact that he saves the world every every movie uh, Precisely. but as a person he's generally pretty terrible <laughs> and the, when you spoke about portraying virtue clearly i actually thought of one of the things 
I don't rag on the Lord of the Rings movies because I think they're very good. But uh, one of the things that I didn't like was Faramir, the portrayal of Faramir, because I watched the movies and then I read the book. And this guy is wonderful. You know, talk about pure in heart. Yes. And and my reaction to it was exactly what you said when you when you learned about Eric Little and his story. Mm. Uh, it's it's almost like courage is catching. Yes. That <laughs> when I read a story about virtue, it makes me want to be virtuous, and actually even seems to begin that process within me. It truly does. There, there's there's a magnetic pull toward that. You're pulled toward the transcendent. I want to be, and ultimately, what I'm wanting is I want to be more like Christ. The one who is the fountain of all virtue, right? You know that Lew, you, you would probably know this. Lewis, when he was meeting with the Inklings in one of the meetings, Tolkien read to him before it was published that chapter where Frodo uh, is captured by Shelob Spider, and Sam thinks he's dead, and yet and and Sam is going to leave, but he decides I can't let my friend's body stay there. That's not proper. He's going to go back and get. Samwise is going to go back and get Frodo's body at risk of his own life. And and I read that Lewis was in tears when Tolkien was reading that, that the beauty of that for me, uh, where they did it well, I think in the movies is I think it's at the end of the first movie, David, to where Frodo's going out into the boat. Mm -hmm. Sam can't swim. And Sam says, I'm coming with you. And he says, don't you leave. He says, I remember Gandalf told me, don't you leave him, Sam Wise. And I don't mean to. I don't mean to. And he goes out into the water and he's going, he would rather drown and die in an attempt to go and join his friend. And I, every time I watch that, I have to choke back the tears. And I think, which of us wouldn't give up almost all our possessions to have a friend like a Sam Wise? And then we want to be a Sam Wise to our friends. And I'm just so deeply moved by that, you know, but that's, that's virtue in its true light. To branch off just a bit, uh, David here, you mentioned the anti-hero and how the, the lines have been grayed. I read a book called The Vampire Defanged by a, a lady named Susanna Clemens. She tracks the history of, in literature of the vampire from Nosferatu all the way up to the modern, at least when she did it up through maybe the Twilight books. And she said, you can see in the character of the vampire that graying process come through. Mm. Even with Bram Stoker's Dracula, Dracula is not a conflicted figure. He's not internally torn over whether he ought to be good or bad. He's the embodiment of evil and sin. He's alluring in a sense. People are drawn to him. He's deceptive. But the closer that you get, he's death. He is sin embodied, and there's no gray about that. But as you move forward into the Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the Twilight, the True Blood series, now you've got vampires who are romantic interests of people. And they're sort of these half good, half evil, flawed characters. And she says this goes right along with what we're seeing in terms of the view of morality getting more and more grayed. And again, that's what Lewis was trying to correct in Abolition of Man. He was really trying to give help to that. And also in The Great Divorce, because they're basically reproducing Blake, that there can be a marriage of heaven and hell, that yes. there doesn't actually have to be an ultimate renunciation of evil. Just given a little bit more time and understanding, it will become good in the end. Yes. One last thing I thought of as we were talking about how stories change us, it's what Screwtape talks about, about the concentric circles that we have within us, uh, the intellect and the imagination and the will. And when we read good stories, 
it ignites our imagination. It's not the end. You know, it still yeah. has to make it to our will, but we are yeah. priming ourselves with goodness. Mm. That's a good phrase. I like I like that. That's a great phrase. We're priming ourselves with goodness. Even you read Plato uh, in his Republic. Now he may have taken this a bit far. Uh, I'm 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 not necessarily concluding that we take Plato's uh, view and 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 make it a law, but Plato thought that they ought not to read Homer's uh, stories, Homer's stories, the Iliad and the Odyssey, and his reason was uh, that uh, Homer has the gods doing all sorts of wicked things in his stories. And Plato was concerned that if we have these, the, the highest beings that we believe in, you know, if we're showing to our young people that they're full of vice, they might likely want to go and imitate that. And it might be doing the opposite of priming them for virtue. It might be priming them for vice. Hmm. Now, whether we want to, you know, write this into law as Plato thought or not, I think we can at least appreciate what Plato was thinking. And he, and he thought he thought well enough to know stories do something to us. They don't just entertain. They do something. They prime us for goodness <laughs> or maybe for vice. To paraphrase and change, Professor Kirk, it's all in Augustine. <laughs> it is. Indeed it is. Dr. Williams, thank you so much for coming on Pints with Jack. Where can listeners go to get a copy of your book, C.S. Lewis, Pre-Evangelism for a Post-Christian World, as well as to find out more about you? So they can go to uh, Amazon and get it there. That's probably the easiest place. And if they want to get in touch with me, I, I don't have a, a, a fancy web page to visit, but I'll just give my personal email. I'd be happy to chat with anyone who wants to reach out. So my email is just Brian, my first name, B-R-I-A-N dot Galatians 220 at gmail.com. <laughs> Wonderful. And listeners, uh, I meant to mention you can now listen to us on Audible. Thanks to Linda for pointing out that we haven't announced this. I submitted our RSS feed to Audible ages ago and completely forgot about it. So please feel free to listen to us there. And if we, you think we're doing a good job, write us a review. If you think we're doing a terrible job, keep your opinions to yourself. Nobody needs to hear them. We'd like to thank Brian again for coming on the show, as well as all of our patron supporters for helping us, particularly our top-tier patron supporters, Shane, John, Kevin, Brian, Kay, Monique, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Jake, Stephen, Matt, Jeff, Kelly, Chris, John, James, Kate, and Rowdy. And please join us again next time, when we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>